0: so, to recap, we're cutting the price of
1: Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at slash switch.
2: $45
3: upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're only covering Chapter 56 today, and the whole chapter is essentially one conversation as well. And yet, there is so much being argued in this tete tete that it is worth looking at very closely. About a week after Bingley and Jane have gotten engaged, the whole family is sitting around one morning, including Bingley. Suddenly, who should appear but Lady Catherine de Bourgh. The text takes pains to tell us how odd of a visit this is. Firstly, it is too early in the morning for visitors. Then she comes in, doesn't say hi to anyone in the room, doesn't ask for introductions, and just sits down. And then she doesn't engage in pleasantries and all but demands that Lizzie go on a walk with her, all the while insulting the Bennetts' house and gardens. Lady Catherine has come because she has heard a rumor that Lizzie and Darcy are engaged, and she wants Lizzie to promise her One, that the rumor isn't true, and two, that it will never be true. Lady Catherine is direct and rude. Lizzie is cunning, lawyerly, and in the end, hurt. The two women exchange very little actual information. This conversation is two powerful women trying to lay claim to power in a world that gives them almost none. What can definitely be said about this scene is that Lizzie does not let herself get bullied by Lady Catherine. We can imagine that 99 out of 100 women would fold under the barrage of insults and threats that Lady Catherine hurls at Lizzie. She tells Lizzie that no one will speak to them if she and Darcy marry, that they will lose all friends and support and will have no place in society. Lady Catherine insults Lizzie's position in the world, the jobs her family have, and even throws the Lydia Wickham situation in her face. But with all of that, Lizzie doesn't bend to Lady Catherine's will. Lizzie will not promise to never become engaged to Darcy. Here is Roxanne Eberly on what Lizzie does say to Lady Catherine.
1: It's very much a class based defense she gives. She says, I am a gentleman's daughter. And I think that would have rung very uh, nicely with Austen's readers to not be bullied by the aristocracy. And it's a period of critique of the aristocracy. It's one of those moments, I think, when you can make a connection to some of the ideas of Wollstonecraft and and, and other writers like Wollstonecraft, right, who argues that the aristocracy is so enervated, it can no longer be a successful kind of government or even a model of womanhood. And Elizabeth is not venturing out of her class. It's not like she's saying, you know, down with aristocracy, but she is saying, I am due respect because I am a gentleman's daughter. But I think the other suggestion is, but I also will not be intimidated by you. And I will not reject my middle-class merchant family either. I mean, so it is this kind of blending at a moment when those classes are starting to converge, the gentry and the middle class, and uniting kind of birth and money. And I I do think she is representing that.
3: Lady Catherine is not moved by this argument and keeps going for Lizzie, telling Lizzie that Darcy and Anne, Lady Catherine's daughter, have been betrothed since infancy. This doesn't faze Lizzie either, Here, Lizzie says that if Darcy were duty-bound to Anne, then he would marry her. Lizzie is so confident in Darcy's goodness that she uses the fact that he isn't marrying Anne as evidence that he had no moral obligation to do so. Here is Elsie Mechie on the difference between Darcy and his aunt's representations in the novel.
2: And I mean, I, I think there's clearly a gender argument here because it's the women who get to be the emblems of, of the bad use of wealth, right? I mean, and in fact, the point of the novel is to differentiate Bingley from his sisters and Darcy from Lady Catherine, right? So at the beginning, Elizabeth thinks, oh, Lady Catherine and and Darcy are just the same. And she thinks it in the negative sense, right? Like, oh, they're bad and proud and, you know. And by the end of the novel, Elizabeth thinks, how could I ever have thought she was like her nephew, right? And it uses gender like an axe to show here's the bad relation to wealth and here's the good relation to wealth
3: Lady Catherine is definitively the big bad witch in this chapter and Lizzie is the David to her Goliath the one small victory that Lady Catherine gets out of Lizzie is that she convinces Lizzie to admit that she and Darcy are not engaged but Lizzie refuses to agree that she will never marry him Lady Catherine leaves without saying goodbye. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Woo! Two titans!
0: Lauren. Oh, love it. Love this chapter. It's so hard not to just read the whole thing out loud. <laughs> but
3: Lauren, before I ask you to teach me something, we do just want to tell everybody, former co-host of Hot and Bothered, the brilliant and hilarious and beloved Julia Argy had her first novel come out just recently, and it's called The One and Other. Everybody should go buy it, get it from your library, listen to it, just imbibe this book in all of the ways. It is a brilliant skewering of surveillance culture set on a reality TV show, and there is sexy love stories, too. I mean, it is just the most brilliant book. So everybody go buy The One by Julia Argy. But Lauren, what do we need to know in order to jump into this chapter?
0: So The thing that I was most curious about, and perhaps you were too, is whether or not this notion of arranged marriages actually like held any weight, like carried any water. If Lady Catherine is just strutting around with her plumage because she's choosing to, or because this is the way things actually worked around there. And here's what I learned. So There was a time in English history when arranged marriages were common throughout the classes, but that ended like during the Reformation. In other words, the 16th century. So this is like Shakespeare's time. People started marrying who they wanted, unless they were really rich people, right? Because as we've discussed many times rich people had capital to consolidate and protect. And so marriage meant something really different if you had a lot of money. So aristocratic marriages continued to be arranged. But even by Austin's era, in fact, in 1780, there's a whole host of literature that tells us this. Arranged marriages, even for richer people, were already very much out of fashion. They were very much the mark of the old guard. And so when Austin sat down to write Pride and Prejudice, they were this thing of the conservative past, right? It's like... It's like her MAGA, right? She's like holding on to this nostalgic supremacist past. And I think it's it's so telling that that Austin put these words and this argument in her mouth because it's so backwards looking, especially about power.
3: That's fascinating. And I I love that there's like this fun, like okay boomer element <laughs> of this argument that Lizzie's just like. This is culturally inappropriate, and I'm not going to take it seriously. And that, in that way, she sees Darcy as separate from Lady Catherine. And this is, you know, what Elsie Michie is talking about also, but that there's this separation between Darcy and Lady Catherine, and one of the separations is generational. But it's an important distinction. Like, he's a young, hip, new kind of landowner who's, like, not going to pay heed to these old ways of doing things.
0: I love that you're pointing out this this generational shift because, of course, this has happened around marriage throughout history, right? I mean, it's like think of a generation who's appalled by the idea of marrying between races or, you know— my mother wasn't allowed to date anyone who wasn't Jewish. And she had to like sneak around with some Irish guy down the block. And that that would have been horrible to her parents. Her parents probably couldn't have even imagined same-sex marriage the same way that we can't imagine life before the loving case. And I think it's one of these issues, like the way that bathrooms come up over and over and over in legal fights around how people can see what society they want to have power in. Marriage, of course, does the same thing. And I love that you're pointing out this this shift here,
3: which is interesting in this broader conversation that we've been having about what is it that Austin pokes fun at? because, again, she's not poking fun totally at the aristocracy. She's poking fun at Lady Catherine's version of the aristocracy, and there are moments where she uses the fact that she, Lizzie, is also a gentleman's daughter to her defense. There's something kind of conservative in Lizzie's argument with Lady Catherine, even as Lizzie is celebrating Darcy's more liberal mindset than Lady Catherine's.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of what she does so skillfully and where so much of her power comes from is she sticks within the arguments, right? It's like when you're in court and you can only refer to the documents and the evidence that's already been declared admissible. That's what you're working with and that's what you have to win with. And that's what she's doing here is her objections are objections to exactly what Lady Catherine says. That's what she turns on its head and she does it so quickly. I mean, Her rhetoric is just, it's extraordinary, and it's so much fun to read for that. I think that we feel her power in reading it. And it's a fantasy,
3: right? It is a fantasy scene of someone standing up to a bully. We all wish we were this articulate when we were getting bullied by someone with more power. I mean, my favorite one is when Lady Catherine, you know, she comes in at first and is like, I'm here for you to confirm that this impossible thing has not happened. And then she says, are you engaged to my nephew? And Lizzie goes, well, you've declared it impossible. Like, you said it's impossible, so it's impossible. What's the point of this question? And you're, I'm just like, oh, it's so satisfying to, like, absolutely demolish someone while still being able to hold on to the moral upper hand of like, actually, I'm just respecting your opinion. That is what you said. It's not possible. Oh my God. I could kiss Lizzie for it. It's just the sexiest, most cathartic thing ever.
0: And also like the world's classiest, I'm rubber and you're glue and everything (laughs) you say bounces off me and sticks to you forever, Lady Catherine. (laughs) Like, keep trying, buddy. I mean, but that does call into
3: question, like, what did Lady Catherine think she was going to get here? She thought this was going to be a 30-second conversation. Is that what she thought? Hey, Lizzie, come on a walk with me. Look, you
0: can't marry my nephew. Bye. Like, what did she actually think she was going to get? How would she not think that? Look at how Collins treats her. Look at how Mrs. Bennett treats her while she's insulting Mrs. Bennett's house and Mrs. Bennett herself. She says, you know to Lizzie right in front of Mrs. Bennett, is that lady your mother? I mean, and is that your sister? And how could you possibly sit in this room? And Mrs. Bennett's just, you know, fluttering around, offering refreshment, talking about her civility. I mean, it's, this is how she's treated by the whole world. And power begets power, right? I mean, we live in these systems. We live in these forms when there are certain protocols and there are certain customs and they just uphold Old power. And it's so extraordinary to feel Lizzie tear it down like this.
3: Well, again, she just keeps saying this thing of like, if you had convincing arguments, I would take you seriously. It's like um, she takes this woman with a lot of power and kind of treats her like a child having a temper tantrum, right? Like when the kids were little, and would whine, I would say to them, look, I don't speak wine. If you can say that more clearly and in a different tone of voice, I might hear you. And that's kind of what Lizzie is saying. Like, look, I don't speak nonsense. So if you could say that in a more reasonable way, maybe I would hear you. Although it's disingenuous, Lizzie would never hear her.
0: You know, and part of her entitlement You know, and of course, this is all about Lady Catherine's entitlement, is the entitlement to what she believes people owe her. It's stunning to me how many times she just so baldly says, you owe me. Don't you think you owe me? I paid attention to you and therefore you owe me. I'm Darcy's closest relation and therefore he owes me. People just owe, owe, owe me, which I think that people of a very high class continue to hold this idea that they are owed something by the world for existing in their place of supremacy. And this is at a time when aristocracy is actually seen as a governing force, right? It's not just like the Kardashians or Paris Hilton or whoever running around with their black card, if those still exist. But, you know, this is this notion that, that there is this obligation that is literally in place of the state. And there is something quite radical in Lizzie's saying, I will not owe you. I will not be intimidated by you. I will not answer to you. Because it it is truly, to me, the most, the clearest way of speaking truth to power.
3: Yeah. It's so interesting because I do believe not that the world owes us certain things, but that everybody deserves certain things, right? We celebrate when Lizzie says to Mrs. Bennett, I deserve a happier life than being with Mr. Collins. I deserve that. And so you can't make me marry him. But then we hate it, right, when Lady Catherine is like, I deserve to have my daughter married to whomever I want, it's interesting when we're like, yes, girl, take up space. You are entitled to that. You deserve that. And then we're like, no,
0: Lady Catherine, you do not deserve that. But that, but that's a question of power, right? Like we're not telling people who are manspreading right. <laughs> to take up space on the subway. We're not giving them high fives for that. The idea is that if you've been denied space, we want to encourage people to take up space. Yeah. And to take away space too, to like, to have a greater equality of space, to have a greater equality of power. You know, so much of Lizzie's power here is claiming it's, she's claiming power. She's claiming the power to refuse to owe Lady Catherine anything.
3: This scene to me is why Pride and Prejudice is the book, right? Whether or not it's actually our favorite Austen. And I still think that my favorite Austen is always the one that I've most recently read. But when we think about why this is the most popular one, I think it's actually this scene. There isn't a swoony moment between Darcy and Lizzie. You know, Darcy does the most romantic thing for Elizabeth off the page. In London when he goes and rescues Lydia. You know, we're about to read the proposal scene and there's no great big kiss like there is in the movies. You know, they just sort of awkwardly agree to get married. But this, it is Lizzie's self-knowledge of what she deserves in this perfect encapsulation of, I deserve a little bit more space than the world wants to give me. And I deserve to not be thought of by someone as merely tolerable and to not be bullied by my mother into marrying someone who will make me miserable and to not be bullied by this stranger into who I can and can't marry. And yet, you know, she makes jokes about like, hey, I might have to marry someone like another Mr. Collins, right? Like she doesn't she doesn't feel entitled and is able to thread that needle with such wit and self-respect. We don't love Darcy and Lizzie. We just love
0: Lizzie. You know, for this whole season, we've been really thinking about where love and where power lies in these chapters, right? And thinking about the love part of this chapter, I mean, there's tons to talk about in terms of the power, and I'm sure we're going to keep doing that today. But you talking about how we love Lizzie, And how it's Lizzie that we love, not Lizzie and Darcy. I was really thinking about that in terms of this conversation, because to me, this is the chapter where at least I love Lizzie the most. And looking for love in this chapter, for me, the real love in this chapter is the reader's love for Lizzie, like how she's allied to us, how she's important to us. When Lady Catherine says that she has no ally, she has no importance in the world. We know that that's not true because we're right there with her, adoring her. And that feels so, so meaningful and powerful to me.
3: And the moment is so brilliantly constructed because Lizzie is this almost superhero of wit and brilliance. But then there's this one moment of weakness where your heart breaks with her and again, I just think it's so brilliant to make us love her. Where Lady Catherine at the end of the chapter, after all of this demanding, says, Are you engaged to my nephew? And right, like there's this moment of weakness in Lizzie that I think just is incredible. The text says, Though Elizabeth would not, for the mere purpose of obliging Lady Catherine, have answered this question, she could not but say, after a moment's deliberation, I am not. And it's almost like she's like, she's so sad that she's not engaged to Darcy that she just like confesses it despite herself. And I think that that moment, you know, especially backed up by this next moment where she completely stands up to Lady Catherine. Lady Catherine says, And will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement? And Lizzie says, I will make no promise of that kind. Right. I, I love that moment of Lizzie actually being back on her heels and being like, Do you know what? Yeah, I'm not engaged to him and I'm bummed about it.
0: It's funny because I was thinking about the power. To withhold information and specifically to not answer questions. Like we are taught to answer a question if it's asked of you, especially if it's asked by someone who is of higher status, older, you name it. Like the idea to insist on one's privacy, you know, even just to sort of plead the fifth (laughs) You know, it, it's it's a concept that is protected. We have this in our law, and yet it's considered to be some sort of third rail. I think especially for someone who is a girl, especially a younger person. And I think that so much of her power in this conversation comes from her refusal to answer questions or share anything about herself. And so in those three little words, I am not... It feels like in that moment, she's losing all of that power that she's built up through that withholding. But then, of course, it's just a brief setback.
3: Yeah. And it is. It's the thesis of this argument. Lady Catherine comes in and is like, I'm very frank and direct and asks Lizzie questions. And Lizzie is like, well, I'm not going to pretend to be as frank and direct as you. You might ask me questions that I refuse to answer. And yet this is the one time that she just answers it. And I just think it's so lovely. I just have to interject myself for a second to say that Nikki Zoltan, my mother, one of the pieces of advice that she always gives is if someone is rude enough to ask an inappropriate question, you can be rude enough to not answer it. And from a very young age, she was just like, that. that is none of their business and you're allowed to not answer. They were the rude one, not you.
0: So thanks, mom. But it's part of how we're taught to please, I think, how we don't want to let people down. We don't want to disappoint them. And like the smallest way that that often comes across in interactions with other people is in conversation in this way, when you are asked a question. I don't know. There's just, there's something about that, that modality and Austin playing with it here as this very feminist source of power that it's, it's where she wins my heart.
3: Yeah. My favorite, like, God, Lady Catherine has, like, no power here moment is when she they come back from this walk and Lady Catherine is like, and don't say goodbye to your mom for me. I'm just like, wow, Lady Catherine, good burn. (laughs) I, I did that when I was 12. Like, it's just, it shows that Lizzie has eviscerated her.
0: And that Lizzie's so much more mature than her because she's had to be, right? Yeah. Because she does need to live by her wits. She does need to be quick on her feet. She isn't having everything in the world handed to her or she's not being coddled all the time and flattered constantly. You know, what it means to not have Lady Catherine's entitlement is exactly what sharpens her. So Lady Catherine may be unpleasant, but she's not exactly sharp. I mean, she's coming into this conversation with a whole host of assumptions that are totally off base, right? That Lizzie just hands her on a plate, You know, when she says, yes, you and your sister did as much as you could in planning the marriage, its completion depends on others. Like, you're not the one getting married, honey. Like, all of these different elements that she throws back at her, just undoing her one by one, saying, this is not how the world works. I mean, and I think that
3: the best example of Lady Catherine trying to exert all of this power is in the sentence that we want to look at closely today. Which is, right, like Lady Catherine, again, is just throwing the book at Lizzie, right? Trying to see anything, anything, anything that will stick to Lizzie and convince her not to marry Darcy. And one of the things that she says is this list, this like legalistic and yet wildly imprecise list. She says that Lizzie shouldn't marry Darcy, quote, because honor decorum, prudence, nay, interest, forbid it. Yes, Miss Bennett, interest. And I love that Lizzie is like, Meh. honor, decorum, prudence, interest, whatever, <laughs> right?
0: Like none of these words are compelling to Lizzie. I mean, other than interest, let's put that to the side for a moment. The first yes. three, honor, decorum, and prudence. I mean- they're, they're language out of the conduct literature, right? I mean, if right. you can imagine a lintel over the portico of a finishing school would be <laughs> engraved with the words honor, decorum, and prudence. They are the opposite of dirty hems. They're the opposite of Lizzie saying, I refuse to be intimidated by you. These are not things that Lizzie is terribly interested in, and frankly, they aren't things that Lady Catherine seems to be that interested in either. <laughs> There's nothing honorable, decorous, or prudent about her behavior right now. But they—they are—they're the words of the old guard, right? This is always who women from the past are telling women from the present who they are supposed to be.
3: Yeah, it is trying to control people through an idea of white civility, right? Like, this is how civil people behave. Don't you want to be civil? Don't you want to be culturally in the class that knows how to be honorable, decorous, and prudent? And Lizzie does to some extent, right? Lizzie's embarrassment about her mother, about her family, is that there doesn't seem to be any honor decorum or prudence, right? That Mrs. Bennet is just going to like stand at the end of the ball and be like, don't you want to marry my daughter, right? Too little of these things is humiliating to Lizzie. So Lady Catherine isn't totally off base. And I think all of us even, right? Like, I don't want to be considered dishonorable. Like, I don't go around being like, well, what is the honorable thing to do here? But like, I want to be thought of as a reliable person. And I want to be thought of as someone who can be trusted and someone with integrity. And like, those things don't have nothing to do with honor, decorum, and prudence. And yet when they get said in this like chiseled into stone way, I'm just like, bleh. (laughs) Like, Who cares about honor, decorum, and prudence? Like, you're talking about my life's happiness. You're talking about potentially, like, true love and me living a life of ambition and fulfillment. And you want me to care about honor, decorum, and prudence? Please
0: see the back door. Well, and what you just described is interest. And that is such a different word than the three that come before it. And it's the one that Lady Catherine emphasizes and repeats. So I'm so curious what you think she means by interest, if she means anything beyond simply her own interest, the interest of her own family line. I think by
3: using the word interest, she is threatening Lizzie. She's saying it is in your best interest to not marry my nephew right and i mean it ends this paragraph ends with a threat with her saying like none of us will even say your name right <laughs> almost like it's like witchcraft like we will not conjure your spirit by saying your name if you agree to marry darcy and so she's just saying like i'm going to try to make your life a living hell if you do it it is in your best interest
0: to not Yeah. I mean, it's like a total mafia tactic, right? It's like mafia rhetoric. It's saying, well, it would not be in your interest to marry my nephew. (laughs) That's literally what she's saying. Yeah. Like, watch out. Your life might be very difficult if you marry my nephew. (laughs) Like, it's almost, I'll pay you 10,000
3: pounds to not do it. But- I mean, what she's really saying is it's not in my interest and therefore it's in no one's interest because if something is in my best interest, it is in everyone's best interest. Again, to your point, because she is the state, because she is, you know, whatever. This is like very Karen mentality. Look, if you treat me well at this restaurant, I will come back. And it is therefore in your best interest to comp me this bottle of $500 champagne. And then, you know, part of us is like, look, it is in everybody's best interest for us to be nice to each other and for patrons to be nice and for service to be good, right? Like part of us agrees to like the low stakes version of that interaction But Lady Catherine and, you know, people who we judge as Karens, it's never about equalizing power or naming the power difference. It is actually just that whatever they want, they think is in everyone's best interest for them to get.
0: And this might be a good moment for me to force myself to remind us all That while Lady Catherine is rich and powerful, she's still Lady Catherine. She's not Lord Catherine. And that sort of desperation of people who are disempowered by gender and then lifted up by class, like your Karen example, is a really complicated place to be and can often really make a person sharpen their fingernails. I'm not saying that from a place of sympathy. Mm -hmm. I just think it is part of this. We have a female villain. This is someone who who Austin has chosen to, as much as we have said Wickham is the villain of this book, I think it is really hard to not embody the fact that Lady Catherine is in many ways the truest villain of the book, which is not me saying that Austin is throwing women under the bus. I think that what Austin is looking at is that really difficult position of power without power Mm -hmm. and what it can do to a person, how ugly it can make a person, how toxic it can be to be in that position.
3: Yeah, she, in this chapter, is just so clearly such a villain I think that the reason that I still see her as less of a villain than Wickham is that she doesn't actually harm anyone, right? Like, Wickham leaves behind these debts. He really harmed Georgiana. He, you know, whether or not we think he harmed Lydia. Lady Catherine is throwing her weight around, but it comes to no end. And that doesn't mean that she doesn't have villainous intentions. But... It's that she found an equal opponent. Maybe that's what it is. Lady Catherine tries to bully Lizzie, and Lizzie, as we now see, is kind of unbullyable, whereas Wickham preys on the weak. And I agree with you that the text absolutely presents Lady Catherine as a villain. I'm just saying that I still hate
0: Wickham more. I mean, it's like the structure of every great action film or kung fu film, right? That, you know, that the whole thing leads up small battle by small battle to the battle royale, the ultimate matched foes, right? When when everything is at full tilt and you don't know who's going to win. And this is the match of foes and Lizzie bests her. And it is euphoric. It's cathartic for all of us
3: That I, you know, haven't gotten obstinate, headstrong girl. Why do I
0: love this so much? Oh, you and me both, honey. Because, man, it is Lizzie, and it is you and me, honey. And I am proud as hell about it. That's the thing, right? Lady Catherine thinks that she's insulting Lizzie. Mm-hmm. And
3: I don't know how this lands on Lizzie. But if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, great, thank you, right? A boss once called me a pain in the ass and it was inappropriate because I was in a performance review, but I was just like, yeah, I am a pain in the ass. Like you make horrible decisions and I am proud to be a thorn in your freaking side. You're a mess. And so I think that's part of it is like someone trying to belittle you and you just being like, I will step into that armor. Thank you.
0: Yes. It's like when people call really smart children precocious as though it's an insult, but really yeah. it's always such a compliment.
3: Well, Lauren, we're here. Darcy is going to come and we'll see what happens.
0: No spoilers, I don't know. man. No one knows how this book ends. Don't ruin it. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I would never. Maybe she'll run off with Charlotte. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> motorcycles in the English countryside, the two of them. Okay, so let's talk about those obstinate, headstrong girls. I'm really curious about how Lizzie's behavior aligns with smart young women of her time, that sort of delicious insolence. Would this have scandalized readers? Would many of them have read Lizzie like we do now, perhaps seeing a quicker, sharper version of themselves, maybe their idealized selves? I mean, what did all of this mean in and as popular culture? We want to talk to someone who really knows pop culture and feminist theory, and of course, Austin. So let's call up Susan Freeman, whose first book was Unbecoming Women, British Women Writers in the Novel of Development, and since then has edited an annotated version of Pride and Prejudice and that Norton Critical Edition of Northanger Abbey, as well as written feminist critique of everyone from Spike Lee to Edward Said. She's at the University of Virginia. Let's get her on the phone. Hi, Susan. Hi, Lauren. So I'm so curious, how do you understand Lizzie's brilliant insolence that we sort of find at its peak in her showdown with Lady Catherine?
2: Well, I, I love it. I, I'm a Jane I'm in love with Austin. And um, obviously, I'm in love with Lizzie. And this is a showdown between these two incredibly powerful female figures, both of whom pride themselves on their sincerity and their frankness. You know, in terms of how it would have been viewed, you know, I I can't say sort of how young female readers would have responded, but I can give you a general sense of the political context. So it's a moment of transition between conservative values, which involve deference to authority and tradition and family and duty and self-sacrifice in the name of those things. And on the other hand, you know, what we might think of as Jeffersonian values, the values that informed both the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And they really value individual rights. And uh, as we know, you know, the pursuit of happiness, um, individual happiness. So So this book really does stage a kind of showdown between those things. And already, clearly, Lady Catherine has been unpleasant in her defense of the more conservative values. And and Elizabeth here is a wonderful spokesperson for her own opinion, uh, her own happiness. She says my and mine a lot. The... um, strongest phrasing of that is when she says, I'm resolved to act in that manner, which will, in my own opinion, constitute my happiness without reference to you or to any person so wholly unconnected with me. So again, this is not, things have not been fully resolved at this moment in favor of um, these more progressive values that uh, Lizzie voices, but they're available to her. And so in that sense, it's not out of nowhere to, to stand up on behalf of those values. And I would say overall that um, one thing we see across the novels is kids going up against parents and the novels basically siding with the kids, which is to say questioning authority and looking toward the future and looking toward um, the more progressive values and and sort of greater degree of social mobility that the future represents. So in Northern Garabi, we have, um, you know, Henry Tilney and Catherine really defying General Tilney. And certainly in the last novel, Persuasion, we have um, Wentworth and Anne Elliot um, celebrated over against Sir Walter Elliot.
0: Do you think that Lizzie, especially in this scene, sort of, or Austen, I should say, writing Lizzie, especially in this scene, opened the gates to this sort of wit and quickness and rhetoric and an insolence, like this beautiful insolence?
2: You know, I see Austen as, you know, in some ways maybe compromising is too strong a word, but um, walking a sort of fine line between, you know, abiding by certain conservative values. On the one hand, I mean, Elizabeth is going to do really well in this marriage. This is hardly an imprudent marriage. She's not throwing herself away. Um, It's just the kind of marriage that Mrs. Bennett would have hoped for. You know, and on the other hand, obviously, you know, we love, I think she's our favorite Austen character because of her defiance. So we've seen her uh, earlier in response to Mr. Collins' Beg him to treat her like a rational creature, and so there it does seem as if Austen is maybe channeling Mary Wollstonecraft, Vindication of the Rights of Woman, in which she really defends women's rational capacities, and and of course during this period and sometimes even now, women are denigrated as being somehow inferior, um, as as logical, you know, reasoning thinkers. So so here, I mean, she is insolent. She's also incredibly rational. And so, you know, when Lady Catherine says, I came here because I heard this report and I wanted to quash it. And Elizabeth is like, well, I think it would reinforce it because, you know, your carriage is seen outside her house. And then uh, Lady Catherine says, uh, you know, Darcy is destined for my daughter. And Elizabeth comes back with, well, if he doesn't marry me, that's not going to make him want to marry your daughter. So she really is... Um, a rational creature here, and that's something that we've already seen defended and illustrated you know, by her her wit and, and her rationality throughout. I guess one more thing I would say that sort of lays the groundwork for her defiance of proprieties is we've also seen, through Lydia, Lydia sort of gets to be the heavy in terms of completely dissing Mr. Collins's attempts to read from Fordyce's sermons to young women you know, Fordyce as a conduct book writer could be seen as someone, you know, admonishing young women to be obedient, to defer to authority. That's already been thrown out the window. I mean, we've, we've gotten to like laugh at Mr. Collins and his, his big old boring book. So, so definitely, again, the groundwork has been laid for some degree of defiance of traditional notions of propriety.
0: I mean, it's interesting thinking about obstinacy here, and it's not the same thing as imprudence. Obviously, this is a very different sort of possibility than than Lydia chased, and even that Charlotte Lucas did.
2: Yeah, I mean, one, um, you know, movies love this scene, partly because it, it's like a play. It really is all dialogue. But one thing about the first cinematic version of Pride and Prejudice in 1940 with Greer Garson um, and Laurence Olivier is that they tweak this scene in a very revealing way. And so here, Lady Catherine threatens Elizabeth with censure and contempt. You know, no one will like you. (laughs) We won't mention your name. In the film version, the 1940 film version, she actually threatens to cut Darcy off. And she makes Elizabeth, and it turns out she's bluffing, but she makes Elizabeth prove you know, to everyone and to viewers that she's not in it for the money because she doesn't care. It's love over money. She'll sacrifice possibility of wealth. Well, that's not true here. And in fact, she gets both love and what do you know, uh, the richest man around and this incredible estate. And when Jane says, you know, when did you start to fall in love with him? I can't believe it. you used to hate him. And she says, jokingly, half jokingly, you know, I believe it was when I first saw his beautiful grounds at Pemberley. You know, and that's OK. I mean, I, I think that um, we like that Lizzie is neither Charlotte nor is she Lydia. Uh, and fortunately, she gets both. Obviously, she's turned down Darcy the first time. She, she's not in it just for the money, but she certainly doesn't lose out by accepting his, his second proposal. So I think that's important. You know, that's quite deliberate on her part that she's, um, people have talked about how her, you know, romance and finance are, are are always twinned concerns. And these are not just um, maybe unlike contemporary romances. It's not just a girl saying love before all. Austin's much more pragmatic than that.
0: As a feminist critique, is that something that frustrates you? Does it feel like, okay, here we have patriarchy and capital, and in the end, Austin isn't exactly burning down either? No, it,
2: it, it doesn't. I mean, I think it's just, you know, I did comment on the Kiran Knightley Pride and Prejudice, which I felt was sort of Bronte-esque, because it really put Lizzie kind of, you first see her outside. She's a sort of, lots of things happen in nature, and it's pouring down rain, and it's all passion. And, you know, I think that that appeals to contemporary audiences because we want the sort of, you know, rebel outsider heroine. To me, Austen's feminism lies in accepting that there were certain material constraints. I mean, Mrs. Bennett is right. Lydia is, it, her, uh, Lydia C. is idiocy. Um, you know, that you, <laughs> um, uh, you have to keep those material concerns in mind. And I think Austen was about how does a, a young woman navigate Um, given those concerns, and that it's a sort of pragmatic feminism that is quite historically specific and class specific. Um, And to me, that's more interesting than a sort of romance that pretends that those constraints don't exist.
0: We've wondered a lot this season about why this is the book that lasts in the way that it does. And for me, I mean, my feeling is like, forget Darcy. I couldn't have any less interest In Darcy and in her romantic relationship with Darcy, which I realize probably puts me in a minority of people joining our conversation, but it's sincere. But for me, this chapter, this is where I most fall in love with Lizzie. And it has really made me think, is the real romance here, is the real love story between the reader and Lizzie? And is that why this book might last? I'm so curious why you think Pride and Prejudice has, you know continues to be so many people's favorite book in 2023 and has spawned the Jane Austen industrial complex and, you know, continues to have really smart readers feeling something uncanny.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that that's great. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't discount the appeal of this heterosexual romance and courtship, and you know, the sort of deliciousness of the banter between them, and the fact that to some degree, anyway, Darcy kind of comes around and and is humbled. But I but I really I I love the idea that in fact the real romance is between Elizabeth Bennet and and the reader. I, I think that's great. You know, I think. So so here I'm going to draw on the work of Gilbert and Gubar in The Madwoman in the Attic to talk about Lady Catherine as also a very powerful female figure. So it's not just that Lizzie gets to be insolent and we love that. But here, you know, here's a scene that is I mean, I wonder if it's the most passionate scene in the book. Um, It's almost like a play. It's very unmediated by the narrator. They go off by themselves and really go toe to toe. And they're both these strong, you know, verbally forceful women. And of course, we we love one and we we don't so much like the other. But when I mentioned Gilbert and Gubar, it's because they have argued partly in relation to Jane Eyre, but also in relation to Austen novels and some other 19th century works of fiction, that women writers who couldn't perhaps overtly, you know, rage and offend and burn down the house do so by projecting some of those feelings um, and sense of outrage at the patriarchy onto these powerful, unappealing figures um, who do have to be discredited in the end, if not um, killed off in the end, but are still in the novel sort of sites of defiance. So here, one thing that Lady Catherine says is, um, Darcy's mother and I planned this. It's such a fitting match because of nobility on the maternal side. I mean, she's making this matrilineal argument in the context of a novel that is significantly based on this weird inheritance thing called the entail, which means that, you know, all of the Bennett sisters um, and Mrs. Bennett will be disinherited in favor of, you know, the buffoonish Mr. Collins. So, and Lady Catherine has earlier also voiced an objection to the entail very specifically. So, um, you know, I don't think it's lasted because we love Lady Catherine, But I would say that she's an interesting figure and that this scene is maybe powerful in part because it's two women going head to head. And they're both known for their sincerity and frankness and kind of forcefulness of speech.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. So, yeah, thank you. This is really fun.
3: You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hot And another reminder to please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, The Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth, and Duchess Lauren Byer O'Connell of the Isle of Key Lime Pie. Thanks this week to Roxanne Eberly, Elsie Mitchie, and Susan Freeman for talking to us, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Willis, and Aja Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons.
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.
3: Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by Patron Saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's n-o-t-s-o-r-r-y-w-o-r-k-s.com.